Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies, and welcome to episode 21 of Enemies of the People. Today we are talking with Colin Yeo. Colin is an immigration barrister as well as the founder of Free Movement, a website dedicated to updates, analysis and advice regarding UK immigration and asylum policy and law. Colin has also written the book Welcome to Britain, Fixing Our Broken Immigration System, which I highly recommend. I first came across Colin and his website many years ago during my PhD and I've used it both for my research but also for advice in my own journey as an immigrant. As the government tries to introduce even more restrictive and punitive immigration measures under the Nationality and Borders Bill, for example, it is more important than ever for us to really understand as much as possible how the UK immigration system works and how it works in an extremely racialized, punitive, exclusive manner. Now, without further ado, here's Colin. Hi, my name is Colin Yeo. I'm a barrister at Garden Court Chambers in London and the author of Welcome to Britain, Fixing Our Broken Immigration System. Why did you go into immigration law in particular? Because my experience from immigration law is from the other side. is when I was an immigrant and then going through the process and, and I had a lawyer myself to help me through it. I was fortunate enough to be able to do it because honestly, I couldn't navigate the system by itself. It is so complex and there are so many rules that sometimes seem to be unwritten and at the time I was applying for an unmarried partner visa then eventually indefinite leave and then citizenship so I don't know how I could have navigated all of that without a lawyer and of course plenty of people do it's a privilege to be able to afford an immigration lawyer so how did you choose to go into that line of work? Yeah I I started out in 2000 my first job was at uh, an asylum reception center they were rather yeah, it was rather masking the reality of them. They were, you know, they weren't reception, they were, they were detention centres. And it was a former barracks that had been converted. So I feel like we've gone full circle, you know, we're, we're seeing former barracks being converted to be used for effectively asylum detention today as well, after a, a, a long interval when they weren't being used in that way. But I, I started off doing advice work for asylum seekers and refugees. I kind of fell into it to start with, because I, there wasn't, you didn't have immigration law modules, asylum modules at university in the same way that you do today. And I was looking for some rights-based work at the time, and I kind of stumbled across immigration effectively. But back back then, you know, it wasn't, I, I liken things like spouse visas, unmarried partner visas, to things like um, a tax return. Like back then, you could do it yourself. But you know, if you wanted to make it easier, then you, you could use a lawyer, but you didn't have to use a lawyer. Whereas today, the, the complexity of immigration law is so much worse than it was in those days. And you know, it's it's sort of talk about those days as if it's like you know olden times. It's it's very much within my living memory. And you know, the rules are so complicated, they're so badly drafted now that it's just impossible to get a handle on what the requirements are. And I come across clients who, you know, they've tried to do it themselves and, and basically messed up and you're sort of trying to put it right. And it would have been a lot cheaper and easier in the first place if they come to a lawyer. And that's a, that's quite an embarrassing situation. So I find myself 
almost like a sort of, I would just, I've just fallen into it now, almost doing like marketing speak for immigration lawyers, which very much isn't how I feel about these things. I try to put as much information out there to help people as possible through my website. But you know, the reality is that it is very complicated now. It is very hard to understand as a, as a member of the public. Zoe Gardner, who works for the um, Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, she was a guest in our podcast a few episodes ago, and she talks precisely about the complexity of the immigration um, system being kind of by design. It's part of the hostile environment. It's making it difficult for people to navigate. And I, she was giving some examples and it was already difficult in my day, but as you said, you could do it by yourself. But nowadays it is so complex. And you do mention in your book as well, there's a section where you go through like the subsections of a particular criteria. And it's, do you agree with this idea that this is by design is to discourage immigration or to trap people into not having a successful claim for immigration? I think it's both um, deliberate and accidental in a way. I I think if you take, if, if you're drafting laws and you do it casually, you're always changing it. You're chopping and changing all the time. You don't really put the time and resources into doing it properly. Then it's inevitable you're going to end up with an unholy mess, and and that's what's happened. And I I, I think there's no reason for politicians to want to undo the mess that they've created. They're quite happy with it being a really horrible, complex, impossible to understand mess, basically, which which is what it's become. I'm not sure that they necessarily set out to create that system consciously, if you see what I mean, but they certainly didn't pay due care and attention. They didn't put the proper resources in. And they're always demanding of their civil servants that you know this rule be changed, that rule be changed, which layers on these this kind of this complexity and, and just makes it worse and worse over time. And we, we're seeing talk about simplification and that the government's been going on about that for two or three years now, but there's there's very little sign of it happening. And whenever they do try to introduce a simple set of rules, like they did for the EU settlement scheme, for example, it very quickly spirals completely out of control. And that is probably has gone from being the most simple part of the rules to being arguably the single worst part of the immigration rules, which is most difficult to, to understand in the course of a year or two. It's incredible, actually. Quite a feat <laughs> to go from that. Yeah, to- it's, it's quite an achievement. It's quite an achievement. So there is this quote in the very beginning of your book that I wanted to start with because it really encapsulates how I feel about the whole thing. You say that migration and migrants themselves are often regarded with relative benevolence when hypothetical or historical, but heaven forbid that a migrant should actually try to migrate in the here and now. And the reason why I really like this is because ever since I moved to Britain over 15 years ago now, and I've become a British citizen in the meanwhile, I've always been struck by the fact that the UK is a country of immigrants that's also deeply xenophobic. So that tension between those two things seems to be quite powerful in British society and politics, I think. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And you know, we're seeing more and more hostility as, as time goes by. And at the time that I wrote the book, I, I feels really ridiculous in hindsight, but it felt like after the, the Windrush scandal had emerged and the review had been commissioned, there was perhaps an opportunity to start thinking about immigration a bit more differently and um, some opportunity for positive reforms. And, you know, that that was a couple of years ago now, and that just hasn't come to fruition at all, unfortunately. Now, it seems, if anything, it's gotten worse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And particularly on asylum. I mean, one of the interesting things at the moment, I think, is that we're back to a situation where the government draws a really hard distinction between 
immigration, particularly economic migration, which is potentially good, although the, the current government's also pretty sceptical of, of that, but doesn't talk about it in really negative terms, and asylum and unauthorised migration, which are, are viewed very, very negatively. And we've got some legislation before Parliament at the moment, which is, is really damaging potentially to, to, to genuine refugees. It's interesting because there's so much about this xenophobia and anti-immigration in the UK. It's performative, isn't it? It's You have just a few weeks ago, or actually no, it was yesterday or the day before, Boris Johnson talking about how the Roman Empire collapsed because of uncontrolled immigration. There is so much of anti-immigration sentiment by the politicians and in the news that is very performative and goes against the reality on the ground. I think it's very difficult in Britain to see the reality of immigration portrayed on the news or, or spoken seriously by, by our politicians. It's they have a particular line that they tow and they perform that line very well. I, I, again, I absolutely agree with that. And what we see is them, them sort of talking about politicians, uh, about immigration in certain ways. But one of the, again, one of the interesting things, like if you scratch the surface, it's not at all clear that they know what they want. And it's very hard to say what immigration policy in the United Kingdom really is at the moment. I mean, they they sort of, they talk positively about immigration in some contexts. There's the BNO visas for for people from Hong Kong who are British nationals but not British citizens, which is potentially a very you know large number of people, and we're seeing quite quite a lot of uptake of of that visa type. And yet we're also seeing language and rhetoric around not encouraging low skilled migration, about the links between migration and wages. It, at least, and this is, okay, this is very much a silver lining, frankly, to quite a dark cloud, but at least we are seeing some slightly more nuanced discussion of immigration and some recognition that there are benefits to immigration and that immigration has positive economic effects, might fill labour shortages and this kind of thing, which contrasts with really the last decade where it's been unremittingly negative about immigration. There were no, there were no upsides to immigration under the sort of previous debates that we've had before, before the Brexit referendum. Yeah. When you talk about your website, Free Movement, and that you started it to, to you know, get information out there and help people. And I'm one of the people that it's helped. Back in the day when I applied for my visas and I was going through the visa process, I looked to your website for a lot of the information. So I'm very grateful for that. And then later on, when I was doing my PhD, I used your website to help me navigate through the complex ways in which immigration law has kind of become enmeshed with counterterrorism, specifically talking about things like deprivation of citizenship. So, so what I wanted to ask in this regard is when it comes to one of the, the pieces of legislation that I find is quite powerful, but perhaps not talked about as much, is the power to deprive somebody of their citizenship and how over the years that power has been strengthened in a way and the protections against statelessness have been weakened over the, uh, over the years. So I was wondering if you could, as an expert in this area, talk to us a little bit about the, uh, I think it was the Immigration Act 2014 that loosened, that was the last time that the uh, rules around deprivation of citizenship were strengthened a bit? Yeah, I, first of all, I just thank you for that feedback because it, it, writing on a website is a really strange experience where you're kind of writing stuff, but you don't get any immediate feedback. And you know, I kind of intend for this to help people, but to hear that it has is, is just really encouraging. So thanks for that. On deprivation of citizenship, it's, it, it's an interesting example of a power that started off quite well drafted, perhaps. It was quite tightly drafted in the sense that the power could only be used in quite narrow circumstances where there was harm to the state, which seems like an appropriate way of a citizenship deprivation power being exercised. You know, if you're going to have that kind of power, and you know, there's arguments about whether you should or not, but if you're going to have that power, then you should surely reserve it for 
crimes against the state, essentially, where a citizen has somehow done something that justifies them being exercised from, from the kind of polity or from the citizenry or however you want to put it. But we saw amendments over time from the 2000s, early 2000s onwards, where the, the legislation was changed to make it much easier to exercise that power until it was actually exercisable, essentially on the same wording as the, the normal power of deportation. Now, deportation is where you send somebody who isn't a citizen back to their country of origin. And because they've, they've committed a criminal offence or, or broken the law in some way or done something else bad. And that's, you know, that's quite a bad thing to do somebody who's, particularly somebody who's been here a long time or is settled, but it's not the same, same nature or order of depriving a citizen of their citizenship and casting them out, ostracizing them from, from your country and, and sending them abroad to another country. So to see that the power is exercisable in, on the same language, which is basically whether it's conducive to the public good, is really quite shocking. But those changes didn't immediately lead to much happening. You know, the kind of the politicians talked about it, they introduced the power, but they didn't do anything with that new power. And it was only really in 2009, 2010, several years after those changes, that we started to see the Home Office bring deprivation action against individuals and ministers sign off on it. And then, as you say, the, the, the latest changes come in 2011, sorry, 2014, really to, to allow for deprivation to take place, even in circumstances where it might arguably leave somebody stateless, which is you know one of the it's sort of try an attempt to get behind really one of the, the statelessness conventions that the UK is is party to. And you know, since that time, we've seen a, a real increase in the number of citizenship deprivation cases. And in one, one thing to bear in mind though is that of course we've also seen the conflict in Syria. And that might well, one can imagine, have raised new issues of national security and betrayal of the state or, or whatever. I'm not quite sure what language to use here in a way that we didn't necessarily see in previous years. So perhaps you might expect the power being used a bit more anyway, but we also, in parallel with that, see it being used in serious criminal offence cases for the first time. So sex trafficking ring, for example, it was used against some men who were convicted of that. And you know, the, the, the fear is that that's the start of a, a trend where it's not just used in sort of actions against the state or where, where there's some sort of betrayal or treason or something like that, but also in cases of serious criminality. Am I correct in my interpretation that the way that the government has gotten around, you know, the, the statelessness issue is by essentially placing the responsibility on the person being deprived of citizenship to get a different citizenship. So the way that I understand it is that the government can deprive you of your citizenship and they don't make you stateless if there is a possibility that you may get a third citizen, a second citizenship, even if you don't have that citizenship at the time. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. That's the latest amendment from the 2014 legislation. Yeah. So in, in the that's what I find really interesting from a political science perspective and the, the way the work that I do looking at the power of the state and, you know, constructions of security is that it kind of shifts the burden of the duty, the relationship between the state and a citizen. It changes the relationship in the way. So it's no longer on the state to provide a protection against statelessness. It is on the citizen to make themselves not stateless, essentially. So they kind of wash their hands of your, their responsibility towards the citizen, even just in the act of removing the citizenship. Because in the world that we live in, if you're stateless, you don't have rights, essentially. That's why being stateless is, is a crime, international 
crimes. So I find that really illustrative of the way that the government has approached immigration law in a way that changes the relationship between not just the state and, and immigrants, but the state and citizens from an immigrant background. Yeah, I, I think there's an awful lot of truth in that. And what we see is citizenship being treated as almost a, a sort of revocable immigration status rather than a thing that has real enduring value or power as far as the government's concerned. Mm. And you see that with the Shamima Begum case and, and, and many others like it, where you've got somebody who was born in this country, was radicalised here, and yet because there's this rather convenient, very widely worded power to deprive somebody of their citizenship if it's conducive to the public good, and as long as they've got another citizenship that they can potentially fall back on, you know, it's convenient to deprive her of her British citizenship so she doesn't come back to us and she becomes the problem of some other country. And as soon as you, you say that last bit, it's like, well, why should she be, you know, if, if she is a problem, why should she be in the care of Turkey or or wherever it is that she is at the moment, or Bangladesh, where the, the, the British government say that she's still a national? Why is it that those countries should suddenly become responsible for somebody who, who has become a problem, if she is a problem, on, on our watch, so to speak? Uh, and you do get this kind of two citizenship emerging out of that, which is really problematic. And it's it's quite it's it's a strange one because it's paradoxically it emerges from the, the, the kind of two two-class citizenship emerges from the statelessness protection. So the reason why a person with only one nationality can't have their citizenship taken away from them is because it would make them stateless. Whereas if you've got two nationalities, potentially through your parents, which was automatically transmitted from them or, or your grandparents even, then you can have your citizenship taken away from you because you've got this other one to fall back on. But it creates this kind of two-class citizenship, which is quite heavily racialized as well. And, and there's some real problems emerge there. The government just doesn't seem to be willing to engage with. Enemies, I wanted to take this time to thank all of you for listening to the show and helping spread the word. This show grows because of your support, so remember to rate and review us and spread the word so we can keep Enemies of the People going. We have no advertising responses, so if you'd like to donate to keep the show going, you can do so over at Ko-fi. The link is in our episode description. By becoming a monthly supporter of the show at Kofi, you will also become a member of the Frenemies Book Club and get access to exclusive online monthly meetings with me and other Frenemies. Next month, we'll be discussing Trends Like Me by C.N. Lesta, and I cannot wait. Thanks to each and every one of you who've become official monthly Frenemies of the show and everyone who donated. It means so much to me. I also wanted to say a special thank you to my friend David Lothar, who helped edit the show this week. David has his own podcast and blog called Politically Enraged, and I recommend all of you to go check it out. It is brilliant. So thank you so much for the help, David. I really appreciate it. And now, back to the show. about racialization of immigration. One of my other episodes was with Maya Goodfellow, who wrote the book the Hostile on the Hostile Environment. And she talks about how immigration has always been racialized and that we can see that expressed very much now visibly and vividly with the hostile environment. And the example that she gives is, you know, this requirement now that um, landlords um, have to check your passport and your right to be in the country before you can rent from them. Similarly, to go to a doctor and on the NHS, I myself have been asked for my passport almost every time I change GP surgeries, while my husband, who is white British, 
is never asked. So there is that element is very visible there. What was the, can you tell us a bit about the background of, of this change in the law that basically made all these requirements to prove your citizenship, to prove your, your right to be here? And it wasn't there before and suddenly it is there now. How did that happen? Uh, it depends how far back you go. So I mean, the, the, the idea of immigration control being carried out inside the country by non-specialists goes back to carrier sanctions from the late 80s, where suddenly ferry companies and airliners were um, required to check the visas of their of their passengers. And they were, they were pretty upset about that at the time, because it's like, well, how are we supposed to know what visa they're supposed to need? How are we supposed to be experts in detecting forgery and all those kind of things? So there's a lot of debate around that then. It was then extended to employers gradually over time. And then eventually with 2014 legislation to landlords as well, and as, as well as to other public servants and sort of access to benefits and things at the same time. But the, the landlords, it's it's just so the way it's done is so obviously likely to lead to discrimination. It's quite difficult to understand how it got through government. And then the more you study this, the more the more you wonder how on earth this this really happened because all these objections were raised by ministers at the time. And, you know, Eric Pickles, who's a former minister in in Conservative government, objected within government to these measures on the basis that it would lead to informal discrimination. He, you know, he's a white man. He, he, he's not known for his progressive views by any stretch of the imagination. And he was able to identify very pithily what the problem was here, which is that if you're only going to get fined if the person turns out to be illegal, then you're 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 kind of incentivized, or uh, if you if you've got a slightly interesting view of risk, should we say? Basically, there's very little risk if the person is white and sounds local, and they've got a British name and they've got a British accent. The, the chances of them being illegal is very low. Whereas you might want to be a bit more careful. You might think if somebody has a foreign-sounding name, a foreign-sounding accent or they don't look white because that's how people kind of assess the likelihood of you coming from somewhere else they just kind of discriminate in in, in that way that's just how people that's how people are whether they should be or not it is like a different question but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's how people that's how people behave in real life and to incentivize that kind of discrimination the pain of a 5000 pound fine for getting it wrong is you know, it's inevitable that that leads to, to race discrimination in the housing market. And it, it probably does also in things like the employment market, the provision of public services and so on. But in those contexts, well, I, I, I think I'm not aware of any studies actually on this, but I would imagine there is discrimination. But at least employers are supposed to be aware of equal opportunities legislation. At least that they're supposed to have human resources departments that can make sure that they're trying to apply this in a relatively fair way where everybody is asked for their papers rather than just some people who you're suspicious of. But with landlords, the vast majority of whom are, are just private landlords and have no exposure to equalities legislation, no real understanding of how all that works, you know, you, you really are expecting far too much to expect them not to have a risk-based and therefore discriminatory approach to this kind of thing. But you talked there about illegality and, and checking because this whole thing is about checking whether or not somebody has the right to be in the country. So whether or not they are an illegal immigrant. I think there are two ways of dealing with illegal immigration, right? You can either have pathways to legalization or you have exclusion and expulsion. Do you think in the UK that uh, the current system encourages legalization or it's more focused on getting rid of illegal immigrants and not to encourage them to stay and become legal immigrants? Uh, well, I think your mistake there is is applying a rational approach because um, the, the government just doesn't, and uh, the, the present government doesn't. So 
under previous governments up to about 2010, you saw lots of policies that I, I really objected to at the time, but I, which I would accept had a rational basis. So the Labour government didn't like unauthorised migration, particularly through, but did like certain types of economic migration. And I think the view of ministers was that you can't just allow people to be here illegally. So they ran several de facto amnesties. They were never called amnesties, but they were basically mass regularization schemes. And they ran those periodically so that people wouldn't be left completely without status. They also, more worryingly, built loads of detention centers and massively increased the number of enforced removals. So enforced removals peaked at about 20,000 a year in about 2004, 2005. Under the current government and its predecessor, the coalition government from 2010 onwards, we've seen a decline in the number of enforced removals, a decline in the number of detention spaces, which people like me welcome. You know, I don't really want to see people being detained and, and being removed. But we've also seen no hint of anything like an amnesty, um, no regularisation schemes. And regularisation has actually been made much harder, in fact, under the government. You've now got to wait 20 years of illegal residence rather than 14 years of illegal residence. And, and the result of that, inevitably, is the growth in the unauthorised population. And nobody knows how many people there are. Estimates vary quite wildly between you know, around half a million and a million. That's a big difference in, in, in number of people here. But you know, we, we don't have a system which is actually enforcing removals, nor do we have a system which is allowing people pathways to legal residence. What we're just doing is, is kind of creating this illegally resident underclass of really exploitable, vulnerable individuals, which is just a, it's just a public policy disaster. It creates a hierarchy, doesn't it, of, of rights, very clearly hierarchy of, of rights in the country where you have citizens and then you have immigrants that have access to some rights and then you have illegal immigrants that just live in the margins and don't have access to anything, really, at least no legal access to anything in the country when it comes to benefits and social welfare and things like that. So as you said, he makes them extremely vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think this was something that was deliberately planned by ministers or civil servants. I don't think they thought, let's build up a really vulnerable, exploitable, illegal population, which is you know mainly racialized. But they, they are responsible for that because it was the inevitable consequence of their policies by removing the right of, of uh, routes to regularization and also failing to remove these people. Of course, you end up with lots of people who are unauthorized. It's inevitable. You talked about detention, and I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about immigration detention in the UK, because I don't think it's something that is very common knowledge unless you are moving into circles that we move into, so we know very well. But if you could tell us more about who can be detained in an immigration centre, are they detained indefinitely, what are the avenues to be released, etc.? Is it only you'd leave to be deported or anything from my understanding is that you are in an immigration detention center while you await your asylum case. But I don't know if that's correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a really big question. And it's quite hard to, to answer in some ways. So I, almost anybody can be detained, including British citizens, while while their citizenship is established, and the burden rests on them to prove their citizenship. So if I'm, I'm a British citizen, if I'm passing through immigration control, I've lost my passport or, or something like that, I can be detained by immigration officers while they establish my nationality. And, you know, it, it's my job to do that for them effectively, although eventually, no doubt, they'd, they'd sort of be convinced and, and, and let me in. I'd, 
hope. But if you're a migrant, then again, they've got this, this power to detain you on arrival. An awful lot of immigration detention is very short term. It happens at holding centres, at the airports, where people are detained and then immediately removed. They don't claim asylum. They were just visitors or students or family members who, you know, maybe maybe they, they did intend to come and break the law or maybe they didn't. But in any event, they can't convince the immigration officer to let them in. And so they effectively get bounced back to, to the country that they came from. The, the airliner that, that carried them in has to has to take them back. So there's an awful lot of people go through that form of a very short-term detention where they, they're not in a they're not taken to a special center. It's not it's not got bars as such. It, it's a kind of holding room at an airport essentially. But it is technically speaking detention. They can't leave it. You've then got the actual proper sort of detention centers which are often built near airports, I guess for for convenience. Sometimes in the middle of nowhere though, just miles from anywhere. And these are intended for mainly asylum seekers or foreign national criminal offenders, people who have committed criminal offences and are uh, going to be deported at some point. And they get detained after their prison sentence is finished and they get taken into immigration detention. There aren't that many asylum seekers being outright detained at the moment, I don't think. It's it's actually um, suddenly saying that I'm not fully sure of my figures. I haven't been looking at the immigration figures recently, but certainly that my understanding is that there aren't that many asylum seekers being outright officially detained in, in the immigration detention centres. But what we are seeing is kind of quasi-detention of asylum seekers, where they're at these bank barracks, Penale, which is now closed, and, and Napier, which is still open. And in theory, they're free to come, come and go from those places. But there are reports of the gates being locked at night. They are surrounded by fences, although not razor wire fences. And they're certainly not as secure as places like Colnbrook or Harmonsworth, which are sort of high security um, detention centres. And there's also reports of guards taking them back there forcibly uh, in slightly mysterious circumstances. During the pandemic, perhaps it was related to those powers, legal powers, instead of immigration detention. I'm not, I'm not sure. But we're, we're seeing more of that as well. But you also see quite long-term detention sometimes. So we see a lot of short-term detention. You see a small amount of really quite long-term detention. And that tends to be, again, not asylum seekers, but foreign national criminal offenders who come from countries where it's very hard to get them readmitted. Perhaps they've been here for a long time. They don't have a passport. The country isn't interested in taking them back, isn't cooperating with the British authorities. And the person has difficulty getting out on bail because they've committed fairly serious offences previously. And and they can end up being stuck in detention for an indefinite period of time. There's no upper limit on the period that they're detained. Is that a breach of human rights? I'm thinking because what that makes me think of is the Belmarsh case. Obviously, this was completely different, but it was also about individuals who couldn't be deported for whatever reason. And in that case was because of Article 3 protections. You know, they, they, they were in danger of being tortured or something like that if they went, um, if they were deported. And that was considered to be a disproportionate breach of human rights. Is it something like that applicable in this case as well? If they can't be deported, but they've served their sentence, but they're still being detained, isn't that a breach of the Human Rights Act? Yeah, it's, it, it is. Event. It's not a breach of your human rights for there not to be an upper limit on the period you're detained. That that's it's, it's got to be assessed in individual cases, and the courts tend to give the government quite a lot of leeway, essentially, to determine how long it's appropriate to detain somebody. But they are the courts are there as a kind of backstop protection, frankly, an inadequate one because you often see really prolonged periods of detention sometimes before a person is able to bring court action to get themselves released, or sometimes even with repeat 
bail applications to judges where you think, well, this person's been detained for really a, a prolonged period already. It's clear that they're not going anywhere, and yet they're still failing to achieve a, a, a good legal remedy. And you know, in other cases, we, we do see them effectively being released after the event. It's already become a breach of their human rights. And therefore, um, the courts are ordering compensation for unlawful detention. And you, you see you know, really quite a lot of unlawful detention claims these days against the Home Office. So there are a number, even if it's not like a big number, there are a number of cases against where the Home Office and the UK immigration system has been found to disproportionately affect somebody's human rights. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, you, you can see the figures from time to time. They emerge through parliamentary inquiries or through Home Office and budgets. You can see, you know, over, I think over the last time I looked, there was over 100 million pounds being spent on compensation for unlawful detention in a given year. So, you know, there are quite a lot of those cases. We track them on free movement. We we don't always report every case because a lot of them are quite fact specific. So we tend to just highlight the more interesting ones. But, you know, the law reports see a regular churn of, of unlawful detention cases coming through. Would you say that it's a sign of immigration system that is not functioning, an immigration system that regularly appears to breach human rights protections? Yeah, absolutely, I would. And particularly, we see that with unlawful detention, because as I say, the courts only come in as a kind of after the event remedy, essentially, um, once it's already become unlawful to detain you. And what we see is the government being unwilling to release people for political reasons, because they are worried that if they release somebody who has committed bad crimes, we're talking about, you know, drug dealers, murderers, rapists, these are often serious criminals. If they get released, the newspapers will hear about it, they will get very cross and the Home Office will get criticism and the, the, the immigration minister will be criticised in public and there'll be lots of people saying, you know, why can't they be deported? So they don't like that situation to occur. And so they just keep people in detention for as long as they possibly can until they are forced to let somebody go. And that is a, a really good example of the executive basically delegating its legal responsibilities, abdicating, I think is a better word, its legal responsibilities and delegating it to the to the judiciary instead, which is not how the system is supposed to work. You know, we've got the executive branch basically deliberately breaking the law and expecting to be pulled up on that by the judiciary. And that's the cost of business as far as they're concerned. You, you mentioned that, that these people, quite a lot of them are some serious criminals that have committed some serious crimes in the UK. I have always been against the idea of automatic deportation of foreign criminals for a certain prison sentence, length of prison sentence, because in my view, it creates almost like a two-tier justice system because British individuals who've committed the same crime, if not worse crimes, cannot then be subject to the same kind of punishment, which is their complete removal from the country. We have seen, and I've learned a lot of this from your website, a lot of cases of human rights claims against the government on the basis of this automatic deportation, the power to automatically deport somebody based on the length of a prison sentence. Is it 12 months? Yes, it is. So, but I think I mean, there are two different things going on there. One is that I, I, I would agree that automatic deportation is a bad idea because it it's just these are human cases. There's an awful lot of variation in everybody's circumstances. And saying that you need to be automatically deported if you've committed an offence and been sentenced to, to 12 months or more just seems really harsh, where you've got somebody who's perhaps been brought here as a baby or as a small child, lived their whole life here, been here for 40 years, whatever it is, and then is suddenly being wrenched out of all that and not really deported so much as exiled from what is effectively their home in all but nationality, basically. But that, that's that's one thing. But I'm I'm personally speaking, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the view that deportation is an inherently um, wrong thing to do. I think you know if somebody has broken the law, 
and they don't have strong links to the UK, I think a state is probably within its rights to deport somebody and send them back to back to another country. But what I would want to see is a very fact-sensitive assessment of that rather than one that's based on a kind of political knee-jerk, you know, 12-month kind of cutoff period or something like that. So you think it's possible to have very desirable to have a humane immigration system where, yes, the state has the power to enforce, you know, protect the borders, whatever, but it can be done in a humane way? That's an, it's an interesting one. And I, I, I wouldn't have used those words myself, but I think there's a strong argument to say that any immigration system is inherently inhumane because you know, you're sorting people and, and, and an immigration system is inevitably has some brutality to it. You know, it involves forcing people um, to, to do certain things in certain ways. It, it forces them out. It, it deports them. It removes them. People may be detained for that to happen. So you and, and you have an asylum system where some pe- people are sorted into genuine refugees according to the Refugee Convention or, or not, and then deported. So it's an inherently brutal, inhumane thing to do to people. But it could certainly be, if you are going to have a system of borders and, and you are going to enforce those borders, it could certainly be done a lot more humanely than it is at the moment. That's not the same as saying it will be humane, but it, it doesn't have to be quite as arbitrary, racialized, and simply unfair as, as it is at the moment. What would it take, you think, for there to be actual reform of the UK immigration system? Positive reform, I mean, not to make things worse, but make things better. It's very hard to imagine it happening at the moment. But I mean, one thing that I'd like to see and that I advocate in the book is to, to try and see migrants not so much as a kind of disposable workforce, a disposable thing, so much as people who are part of our society. And once they're here, they're here to stay. They're, they're citizens in waiting, to, to borrow a phrase that, that, that's, that's used in America sometimes. And therefore, you should either, if you're going to remove them, do it quickly, for example, but before they become settled. So if you've got a, a rapid asylum assessment procedure, which we just don't have at the moment, you know, the, the asylum assessment procedure of refugee status determination process is taking over a year in average cases, it's, it's it's probably getting on for 18 months, two years now. It's just going longer and longer and longer. And allowing people to stay for that long and then trying to remove them at the end of that is just unnecessarily cruel. You know, if you are going to remove them, it'd be better to do it sooner rather than later. But although I'm not trying to say that that would be nice for them in some way, it clearly wouldn't be. But if you're going to do that, it's better to do it in those circumstances. And to allow people proper routes to regularization, not to try and trip them up in the way that we do at the moment with the costs, the complexities of the system, the kind of very arbitrary decision-making that you see from the Home Office in some cases, and to help people to stay and to help them to settle down and to, to integrate in a, in a sort of positive way. From your own experience, from your doing this work for a long time, what do you think is the most um, insidious part of the hostile environment? I think it's the discrimination. So I, when the hostile environment is used in lots of different senses, and, and you could use it just to mean being horrible to immigrants, which there's, there's certainly a long history of in the United Kingdom. I, I tend to use it in a much more narrow sense of the, the set of laws that were introduced that were basically in-country immigration controls. And I, I, that, that's what I mean. So the 2014 Act and certain changes before that and since that, regulatory changes and things like that. And I, I think just the, the obvious risk of discrimination in all of those measures, where in particular Black British citizens are likely to be checked much more than white British citizens and are likely to be queried in an existential way. Do you have a right to be here in, in a way that white British citizens just aren't? 
I think is really problematic. And I really, I really feel very strongly that we should roll back as many of those laws as, as, as is as is possible to move them out of the sphere of immigration. For example, to you know, if you're going to have rules in employment about who's employed and who's not, make that matter of labour market regulation. Don't make it a matter of immigration control regulation. So, so I'd, I'd really like to see that set of laws being rolled back and fundamentally reformed. Do you think it'll happen? No. <laughs> I may, may, maybe over time, maybe eventually, but certainly under the present government, I, I really can't imagine that happening. They, they are committed in theory to a, a full review of the hostile environment. They've said that they will implement all of Wendy Williams's lessons learned review points from the Windrush review, but I, I just don't expect there to be any serious review. I wouldn't expect extra hostile environment laws to be introduced at this point. So the last thing that I think changed about the sort of suite of laws that, that I think make up the hostile environment was there was an extension of the bank account checking procedure. So under the 2014 Act, um, it became mandatory for banks to check your immigration status before they allow you to open an account. And that's bad because it causes all sorts of problems for recognised refugees and, and others and, and so on. But then the 2016 Immigration Act later required banks to close existing accounts if people couldn't prove their status. And status was centrally managed by the Home Office on a database so that your account will be closed without any notification. And the idea that you, know, you, you suddenly lose all of your access to money in the modern world overnight because of some central database that the Home Office manages is absolutely incredible to me. And despite all the problems with that, despite the evidence that there were a lot of wrong entries on that database uh, and that the Home Office isn't very good at maintaining its records, despite all of that, the government rolled out that power and quite quickly it became evident that there were going to be problems with that. And the last thing I think that happened with the hostile environment is that when he was Home Secretary Sajid Javid, said that they were suspending that aspect and that they were going to review it. And that was several years ago now, and it hasn't been reintroduced. And I, I just think that you know they, they realise that they've taken it as far as they can without there being real problems. But I, I don't expect them to start rolling things back under, at least under this present government, maybe a, maybe under a future alternative government, but but not under this, this current lot. Thank you so much, Colin. This was great. Thank you for being so patient and answering all my questions. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Colin Yeo. His book, Welcome to Britain, is available now. You can find him on Twitter at ColinYeo1. His website, Free Movement, providing updates, commentary and advice on UK immigration and asylum law, is at freemovement.org.uk. If you're enjoying Enemies of the People, please tell everyone you know. Rate and review us, download more episodes, subscribe and follow. Your support means the world to me. Remember, you can also support us over at Ko-fi and join our Frenemies book club by becoming a monthly supporter. Our next meeting is on Saturday the 5th of March and we will be discussing C.N. Lester's amazing book, Trans Like Me. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People. <laughs>